Uh, but we're going to finish up 1 Corinthians 3. And uh, we're going to continue to look along this theme of spiritual health, church unity, church leadership, our individual, our responsibility as members of Christ's church. And as we've seen, in order for a church to be spiritually healthy, uh, the leadership, the, the elders must be building the right things upon the right foundations. The church membership must also come alongside uh, in this process of being a church that glorifies God as the elders equip the church body for the work of ministry that the membership of the church is seeking to build the right things upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And how easy it is to start building with items um, that, that, as we saw last week, they don't span the test of time. So, for instance, we can be caught up building platforms for ourselves instead of building disciples of Christ. We can be building out of our flesh instead of on dependence of, on God's grace to do what he desires in and through this local church. We can uh, build on exterior flashiness and and. And, and razzle-dazzle while neglecting the interior beauty of hearts that are fixed on the gospel. You see, we must all be careful to have the right focus when it comes to being a people, being a church, who are delighting in the gospel. Because out of this right focus is going to come, as we've seen, true unity and church health. So we're going to see from these final verses in chapter 3, verses 16 to 23, we're going to see today that, that having the right perspective of who we are, having the right perspective of, of who God is, and how we relate to one another, and what our mission is, it's going to come from living out our identity in Christ. Who are we, not simply as individuals, but who are we as a church? And then it's going to be a matter of having the right spiritual alignment in our lives, in our thinking, and as a church. We've already seen from chapter 3 that if we are to truly uh, be one, if we are to have church unity, it's going to come as a matter of our hearts, we saw from chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Then we saw in verses 6 to 9, it's a matter of our focus. Is it on, on Jesus? Is it on the gospel? Or is it on lesser things? And then last week we saw in verses 10 to, to 15, what are we building on Christ's foundation as a church? It comes as a, uh, out of a focus on our mission as the people of God. And all of this points us again to the main principle of our series that we have to cling to what truly matters. We can't lose sight of the basics for higher things. So this morning we're going to see that if we are truly going to be one, if we are going to be a healthy church, it's going to be 
a matter of living out our identity. I want to ask you this morning, this, uh, as we look at living out our identity, and then we're going to look, uh, we're going to conclude with um, uh, living out of true spiritual alignment, we're going to be asking ourselves some specific questions. I'm going to be asking you some specific questions. And the first question that I want to ask you, all right? So everybody put your, your, your focus, put your, your thinking cap on as you think through this. Question number one, do you understand the nature of the church? What is the church? How does the Bible describe the church? Because if you are a believer, and, and, and we believe in church membership here, especially if you are a member of this church, we have to know what does that make us as a collective group of people? And Paul continues in verse 16, let's read what he says. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So from verse 16, we have to ask ourselves, do you, do I understand the nature of the church? Paul is really serious about the Corinthians knowing who they are. And that's why he says there at the beginning of verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple? This is a matter to be grasped. They should have had an understanding of who they were as a collective group of people. How God looked at them but they didn't. This is actually the first time in, in, in the book of 1 Corinthians that this phrase, do you not know, is used. For instance, uh, um, I'm just going to read to you a few other times this is used. In chapter 6, verse 2, he says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And then in verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? In verse 9 of chapter 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? In verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? In verse 16, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? In verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And then he, he continues again in, uh, in chapter 9, and he asks them another pointed question. He says in chapter 9 and verse 13, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? Verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but one receives the prize? Ten total times in this one book. He asked this question. It's an important one. And, and, and this expression, it doesn't simply mean, don't you have a head knowledge of what I'm about to tell you? Don't you know intellectually what I'm about to tell you? Now, now there is that element that's involved, but it has the idea of not just a head knowledge but an understanding of a spiritual truth 
that produces an outworking of that truth in, in one's life. That's why we know God's word. That's why we're to be students of God's word. That's why we're to study God's word. It's not just to fill our heads. It is to direct our paths. Do you not know? Because if you knew, you would be living differently. I mean, we sang that song this morning, a sovereign. A sovereign in the... Uh, uh, mountain tops or whatever it is, mountain air, sovereign in the ocean floor. And, and then that, I think the bridge to that song says, uh, uh, sovereign in my greatest joy, sovereign, uh, what's, what's the, 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 in my deepest cry. Boy, that's easy to, to kind of know with your head that no matter what height or depth we find ourselves, God is still sovereign and God is loving and God is in control. But boy, that's hard to live out, isn't it? You see, true biblical knowledge is not just head understanding, it is heart understanding that lives out what the head knows. So when Paul says, don't you know this? He says, it's evident that you don't know this because you are not living in accordance with it. So what are they not living in accordance with? Well, we see here that he calls the church God's holy temple. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So these believers could easily justify themselves and say, yeah, Paul, you taught us that before. But Paul says, no, you're not living like it. I need to remind you, Paul is saying, that you are God's temple and that should influence how you are relating to one another within the church and what your mission is outside of the church. God's holy temple. We talked a little bit last week about this concept of the temple. I just wanna, want to um, repeat some of it and go a little bit further so we understand um, the significance of what Paul is saying. Uh, the first instance that we have of a temple concept that I mentioned last week is in, in the Garden of Eden. We're not going to look at the passages, but Genesis 2 verse 8 says God placed Adam in the garden. Genesis 3 and verse 8, it says God walked with Adam uh, in the coolness of the day. God's presence was in the garden. It was a sort of temple that God created to dwell with man. And of course, we know the story. Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. And because the garden was holy, God dwelt there with man. They were kicked out of that garden. But God's plan wasn't finished because it doesn't just start with the garden temple. It then goes to this concept of a tabernacle. Remember the children of Israel, uh, they were in the wilderness. God was going to lead them to the promised land. In Exodus verses, chapters 25 to 40, uh, God goes into detail of how Moses is to oversee the construction of this tabernacle that would go wherever the people went. In Exodus 25 and verse 8, that will be on the screen, God says, let them make me a sanctuary. Why? 
that I may dwell in their midst. God's localized presence would be in the tabernacle. Just as it was with Adam in the garden, God would once again dwell with man in the tabernacle. The problem is is that now there would be sin in the world. There would be sin in the camp, and that's why God instituted sacrifices, so that a holy God could dwell with a sinful people. In Leviticus chapter 26, God says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Did you know that phrase, I will walk among you? Is, uh, rep- it's repeated from Genesis 3.8, where God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. So automatically, we're getting a picture that God is restoring what Adam lost, That God is dwelling with his people in their midst. And of course we know that God did lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And David, God uh, put it on David's heart. You know what? I have a home. I have a palace. I want God to have a permanent dwelling. I want to build not simply a tabernacle made of, of, of of a tent, that that's transported wherever. No, I want to make a permanent place for my God. And of course, Solomon wound up building that glorious temple. And we read in 2 Chronicles 7 that God's glory, His presence fills the temple. God would dwell amidst His people. Of course, we know that God God dwells uh, everywhere. Uh, It's not that there's a different God in each place. It's not that there's um, God in this room, and then there, you know, God is in another room, and God is in Africa, and and there's another. It's not that there's that 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 there's all these different same people. It's that God's presence encompasses everything. His one presence is totally encompassing all that he has made. But God's localized special presence was dwelling in the midst of his people. That is where he would specifically make himself known. Of course, we know that Israel disobeyed God. They were were kicked out of the land. Uh, They were sent into exile. God, in his mercy, he brings the people back, a remnant back. And there's another temple that's built. This is the post-exile temple. This took 20 years to build. It was led by a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. You can read of him uh, in the book of Zechariah. In fact, uh, the, the, the Bible says that when the children of Israel, those who were older that remembered Solomon's temple, when they looked at this smaller temple that was rebuilt, they wept because it was nowhere near the glory of what Solomon had built. But God promises in the book of Haggai, he says, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Well, as we continue in the biblical story, we see that Jesus comes, and he is the true temple of God. That when Jesus comes to earth, John 1.14 says, he tabernacled among us. The same word of, of the tabernacle that was built 
in the Old Testament. In John chapter 2, Jesus says, my body is the temple. That we knew that God was dwelling in our midst because Jesus was here in the flesh. He was the true temple that all the other temples pointed to. And then we get to the New Testament and we see this concept that Paul talks about. The church is God's temple. You see, because we are connected to Jesus, the true temple, Jesus is the cornerstone of this temple. The, the church has been built on who Jesus is, the message of Jesus. And now we are God's temple. God's presence is in our midst. God's presence is with us this morning. In fact, verse 16 says, God's Spirit dwells with His people. Now many times, and, and again, um, just like many times we individualize verses 10 to 6 to 15 that you know, well, what are you building upon the foundation of your life? And we see that Paul's, what Paul is saying in context is, um, no, this is talking about what are we building upon the foundation of Jesus in the church. We see here many times we think and individualize verse 16. Well, we are God's temple individually. And, and that is true. In fact, in chapter 6, and verse 19, Paul does say, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? That God's presence dwells within each of our hearts if we are followers of Jesus. But that's not the point Paul is making here. He's saying, you, do you not know? That's a plural, not a singular. It's not do you as a person. It is do you as a local church not know that collectively you're God's temple? Do you not know that God's spirit is dwelling in your midst? Do you not know, let's make it real clear according to what Paul's saying, do you not know that when you are meeting together and you are in and half of a, a, a Part of you is following this one leader, and then another part says, no, I don't like him. I'm following this leader. And then another part says, no, I'm following this leader. And when there's dissension, and there's arguments, and there is backbiting in your assembly, do you not know that God is in your midst and sees that? Just like the children of Israel who God dwelt in the temple and yet they would be sure to offer their sacrifices to God. But then they would live any way they thought as if God was not aware of it. You see, we can be quick to judge God's people in the Old Testament and not realize how much we can mirror that. You see, God's people comprise God's temple. That's why in 1 Peter 2 and verse 5, uh, uh, Peter says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
So Jesus is the foundation. He's that cornerstone. And then every single believer that is brought to Christ is like a stone in that building that is being built up to God's glory. I mean, and here in 1 Peter, 1 Peter says, not only are you that temple, but you are priests in that temple. And man, when you are serving the Lord, when you are living for him out of devotion and love to him, not simply to check things off, because we read in the Old Testament that just offering sacrifices for the sake of offering sacrifices, that's not pleasing to God. God says it sickens me. But when we are being a faithful priesthood, offering up our sacrifices to God through Jesus, those, th- those offerings are acceptable to him. Can I ask you by way of application as we look at this first question, do you understand the nature of the church? Can I ask you this, this applicational question? Does your view of the church and your role within the church comply with what the scriptures say? Does your view of the church match the high view that God puts on his church? That this this very morning, while, while we don't see God, We know that God in a unique and special way is in our midst. That God is aware of every single thing that happens among his people. Pastor Adam, of course, isn't. Pastor Dennis isn't. Our church leadership isn't. But God is. And if we are not only that very temple of God, but we are priests within that temple, does how we see our role within the church comply with what Scripture says? Because God's priesthood is not to just fill a pew, fill a chair. It's not just to come on a Sunday morning and be content as if they somehow did God their reasonable service. No, a priesthood represents God to others. Offers sacrifices acceptable to Him. They are living witnesses both within the community of faith and outside of that community. Do you see yourself as a holy priesthood? Question number two. Not only do we understand the nature of the church, but I want to ask you secondly, do you understand, and this goes off of what what we just talked about, do you understand your responsibility as the church? We looked at 1 Peter 2.5, but Paul highlights some further things in verse 17. Notice he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Why? For God's temple is holy. And again, he reemphasizes this truth. And you are that temple. So what is our responsibility as a church? According to just this verse, I mean, we could look at other verses and compile a list, but we just want to look here at verse 17 right now. 
Number one, our responsibility is to be on guard. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Now, we understand that Jesus says, um, um, you know, the gates of hell shall not prevail against Christ's church. But that doesn't mean that local churches cannot be destroyed in the process. Christ's church as a whole will never be destroyed. But local churches can. The church in Corinth was in jeopardy of being destroyed. You see, there were those within the church that would destroy the church if left to their own efforts. And we see in verse um, in, in chapter three and, and, and verse fourteen and fifteen, we see that we, we talked last week that if anyone's work um, that he's built on the foundation doesn't uh, it survives he'll receive a reward a reward if anyone's work is burned up he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved but only as through fire here we see somebody that's building the wrong things on the right foundation and and, and Paul says you know what their their works are going to be burned up they're not going to last they're of this world but they were believers. But then he says there's also, there can be individuals that are seeking to destroy God's temple. And those people won't be saved only as through fire. Those people will be destroyed. We are talking here about unbelievers. Those that may profess to be Christians, but they are not true believers at all. In fact, they are posing harm to the body of Christ. Now, practically speaking, the fleshly way that the Corinthians were acting was indeed putting the church at danger of being destroyed. Remember, Paul says, you are acting fleshly. You're acting according to the world. If you are truly God's people, you are going to take this warning and repent of it. As one individual says, I think he helps us understand this point. He says, according to the context, and the literary context means the context of, of what we're reading in the passage. The way to destroy a church is to focus on worldly wisdom rather than the gospel. Thus, the ways to destroy a church include dividing over teachers, focusing on less important uh, issues instead of the gospel, or teaching false doctrine, Paul's warning applies especially to divisive people in the Corinthian church. Jesus refers to these type of individuals as wolves in sheep's clothing. They appear to be believers, but they are only appearing as sheep, and and in reality, they are wolves that left to their own devices will murder, annihilate the flock. You see, if we are God's temple, we must be on guard. That is why we must know spiritual truth. That is why we must cling to the Scriptures as our authority, because anything that deviates from the Scriptures is in danger of destroying a church. So we must guard God's Word, We must know God's word, and we must be living out God's word. 
We must be on guard, but secondly, we also see our responsibility is to uphold the holiness of God's temple. Of course, we don't do this on our own. We know that left to ourselves, we are unholy, but Christ has made us holy. You may say, Pastor Adam, I don't feel very holy. You know what? I don't either. But did you know that this same word holy is used in chapter 1 and verse 2 as Paul opens up this letter? And he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified or made holy in Christ Jesus... If you are a believer in Christ, you have been set apart. That's what the word holy means. You have been purified to be God's own. And therefore, are we as Christians seeking to keep the church set apart to God? That doesn't mean we're isolating That doesn't mean we don't want unbelievers to come. That doesn't mean that we're not rubbing shoulders with unbelievers. Did you know that one time um, during during my my first ministry, um, I was doing this VBS outreach, and and, and I talked to to the pastor about, you know, after this week-long VBS, that we would have... Uh, maybe we could have like all the parents of, of the, the neighborhood kids to come in and we could like show what the kids did and, 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 and have like a promotional time. Here's what your kids did this week. And then, and then you know, we can give them the gospel. Do you know the answer that, 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 that he gave me? He said, well, it depends if you want the world in the sanctuary. I was like, what? What, what does that mean? <laughs> Um, And needless to say, we weren't there for very long. But that is not what it means when it says that God's temple is holy. You want unbelievers to hear the gospel. But what it does not mean is that the church is compromising with unbelievers. That the church is compromising to even make the gospel sound better so as not to offend. Listen, the message of the gospel, it will offend. To those who God does not call to himself, they will be offended. For you to say you are a sinner left to yourself, you are destined for eternal destruction, and Jesus is the only way. I mean, that's what Pastor Dennis is talking about in the Engage class. We have to be willing to to, um, give that message, which in our day and age, it is is, uh, less popular than it's ever been before to say Jesus is the only way. But God's temple, God's church is to be set apart for himself. That means that God is our priority that the scriptures are our guide, and it means that if we are a priesthood to God, that we should be a people of prayer in full dependence on the Holy Spirit to strengthen us for the mission to be his representatives that he's called us to be. By way of application, I want to ask you the same question I just asked you in in the previous application. 
does your view of the church and your role within it comply with what Scripture says? You see, church health, church unity, it is a matter of knowing and living out our identity. We are God's people. I mean, maybe today you're sitting here and you feel like, you know what? I don't have a place of belonging. I I feel isolated and lonely. And here we see that, that Christ has given us a place to belong, not only in the family of God universally, but specifically in the local church. To have our identity be wrapped up in who Jesus is, not what we do or think of ourselves. But I want to ask you um, another question. But before we do that, we see that church unity is a matter of our identity. As we look at these final verses, 18 to 23 of chapter 3, uh, church unity, church health is a matter of our alignment. How many of you have recently gotten your tires aligned? Yeah, I, remember, I, heard, I heard Pastor Dennis's story, if you want to talk to him about his story. But you know, what happens when your vehicle's out of alignment? You know, the steering wheel's all shaky. You know, depending on how bad it is, you know, you could be overcompensating just to stay straight. And, and, and it has effects on your tires, the, the tread. And it, you want to have a vehicle that's in alignment. Many times, unfortunately, the alignment of our vehicles and our toys are, are more in our focus than the alignment of, of, of the church with what God's word says and the alignment of our spiritual lives. Isn't that ironic? Talking about the things that pass away. So what we are called to do, the church leadership, and then the members as well, is we are called to say, is our church, is what we're doing in alignment with God's word? We have to ask ourselves individually, is my life, is my home, is my family in alignment with God's word? Or man, do I continually find myself overcompensating to try to stay on the right road? To stay within the right lane. In order to answer this matter of alignment, I I have two final questions for you. Number one, where is your source of wisdom coming from? That is generally going to be a pretty good indicator of whether you are spiritually aligned with God's word. Where are you going to for Wisdom for truth. In verse 18, Paul transitions. He talks about spiritual leaders within the temple that, listen, don't be just focusing on what style leader you like. What are they doing? Are they building the right things on the, on, on the foundation that I laid, which is Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel Be on guard. Realize that you are God's temple. You have a responsibility in that temple. 
But now he transitions to, 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 to talk back about this wisdom that he compared and contrasted to God's wisdom in chapters 1 and 2. There was a problem. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. Isn't that a great problem? Isn't that why Proverbs says, uh, the heart is wicked, um, is desperately wicked and who, deceitful and desperately wicked and who can know it? We deceive ourselves. There is a problem here of self-deception. Let no one deceive himself. Satan has been deceiving people from almost the beginning of time. In fact, Paul writes, not in 1 Corinthians, but 2 Corinthians, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Doesn't that sound a lot like what we're reading That somehow we are being deceived away, and it's a gradual deception. It can be through the things we're watching on television. It can be through the the news that we're hearing. It can be through the conversations we're having with others at work. It can be through whatever avenue it is that we're filling our minds. It can be from our own heart. That deception begins to take root. We have to guard against deception. That's one of the strengths of being a part of a local church. And not, again, not just sitting here and, and saying I go to church on Sunday, but being spiritually engaged with other brothers and sisters within the assembly. And you know what? Sometimes that takes work to get to know others, to go outside of your circle of one or two, and, and, and to, uh, to put yourself out there and to say, you know what? I need spiritual relationships in my church. I need others to pray for me. I need to be vulnerable enough uh, to share with the, when I develop those relationships, to share how others can be praying for me and my struggles and weaknesses because we are prone to self-deception. And specifically, the self-deception that he's talking about in verse 18 says, if anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age... Let him become a fool that he may become wise. You see, the problem was not just self-deception, but it was worldly wisdom. To think you are wise when God's word says you're a fool. You're putting all of your hope in the wrong things. All of the things that will pass away. Notice that the verse says, If anyone thinks he is wise in this age. Did you know chapter uh, 2 and verse 6 says that the things of this age, the same phrase, are doomed to pass away? You want to build your house on those sands that are going to fade away with the waves? We've heard a lot about the phrase, you want to be on the right side of history, right? How many of you heard that phrase at least a few times in the past month or two? Hey, you know what? 
What you, what you say, what you believe, you want to be on the right side of history. Well, you know what God's word says? It says that if we are drinking in hook, line, and sinker the philosophies and wisdom of this age, that we are indeed on the wrong side of history. Because the right side of history is that which is eternal that will never fade away. Do not be intimidated in your school, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, that you believe differently than the majority of those around you. This is a, a, um, this is a situation, this is a, um, uh, a, a trial, a difficulty that, at least in the United States, that we're experiencing in our day and age more than those who have gone before us. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a, it's not a we need to put our head down and, and just bemoan it. No, we need to say, you know what? The light's going to shine brighter the darker it is. But do not be ashamed of Jesus and the gospel. Because there are going to be those that say this is the way you should believe and it is only the word of God and knowing the wisdom of God and that God's truth is eternal truth that will cause us to cling to his word in the midst of hearing all the wrong voices. So what's the solution to this problem of self-deception and worldly wisdom? The solution is to be willing to be foolish to this world, but to be wise unto God. Doesn't sound very prosperity gospel, does it? Doesn't sound like very fun, does it? Who wants to appear foolish to the world? I don't. I don't think you do. But Jesus says, if anyone will follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We have to be willing to appear foolish to this world because we know that in the foolishness of this world is the wisdom of God. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. In chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Listen, don't bemoan when an unbeliever acts like an unbeliever. Because that is what is natural. We need to pray that God would open their hearts, but don't get all upset. One thing that I think that we can have a tendency as Christians to, to fall into the trap of is that, that, that our, our, our following of the gospel sometimes uh, gets washed, watered down with our following of all of these preferences and, and things that are really secondary, and it really detracts when we really do need to stand out in contrast to the world because we're busy fighting all, over all these other lesser things. We have to be willing, however, to stand for God's wisdom. And what is God's wisdom? It is that Jesus is the crucified Messiah. He is the one and only one that is worth serving. 
and that all will stand accountable to him. That is the message that we have to hang our hats on. We see what the solution to this problem is, but what's the foundation? The foundation is not your boldness. The foundation is not your internal stamina. The foundation is not your, wis- your own wisdom or your strength or your abilities. No, the foundation is God himself. Verse 19 says, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Now, I would rather be, con- be considered folly to the world than folly to God. And it says, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. You see, what, the, what our foundation is in navigating through this world, what our foundation is in being a church that, that is a healthy church, a testimony in this world until Jesus comes again, is to realize God is the determiner of true wisdom. Man cannot override God's declared wisdom. His first quotation there in verse 19, he catches the wise in their craftiness. It's a quotation from Job 5 and verse 13. It's not simply meaning that that God says, Aha, I caught you. I I, I got you in my trap. No, it, it has the idea that God from before the foundations of the world has determined what is true wisdom. And it's wrapped up in the person of Jesus. And any who go contrary to that wisdom will not endure. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And then a quotation from the Psalms, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Isn't that what Paul has continually emphasized to us? You want to follow your own path? Man, you may enjoy it for a period of time, but it will end. You will appear wise in the world's eyes for but a brief moment of time. You see, God has determined, he's ordained that man left to his own wisdom will fail. Are you sitting here today trusting that God is the determiner of true wisdom? Are you looking to the wisdom of this world? But I want to ask you one final question this morning and we'll be done. This question is, are you settling for second best? Don't we often hear this question when it comes to various life issues? I mean, you hear this question when it comes to marriage, right? Hey, you know what? Don't just settle for anybody. Don't settle for second best. Hey, you know what? Anything in life that that is worth pursuing, it's going to require hard work, so don't settle for second best. And it could be in your job, in the school you go to, 
um, in what major you pick. It could be uh, don't settle for second best. A- any category of life, really. We've all heard that, right? Are you, don't settle for second best. And again, it's amazing how much of the things that will fade away, we are not content to settle second best for, but when it comes to eternal things, we are. I mean, I can spend a lot of time researching. I like to research, and you know, it can be something, a purchase that needs to be made, and man, you know, with, with the internet, we have all the information at our fingertips, and we research and research and research all over things that we forget about in a couple months, a couple years. But what is eternal, we just don't give a thought to. What can we settle spiritually for second best with? Well, according to our text, we see we are faced with the contrast of all things versus my things. Paul says in verse 21, let no one boast in men. Listen, it doesn't matter if you're Paul or you're Apollos or you're Cephas. Uh, don't boast in people. Your boasting is in the wrong thing. What are we supposed to take pride in? We're going to see that he continues. He says, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present, or the future. All are yours. You may say, what does that mean, uh, Pastor Adam? It means that Paul's bringing out that we can be so caught up in the philosophy and the way of life of this world that we are content to find our identity in lesser things rather than God and what he has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. That if we are followers of God, it says, all are yours. Not in the sense of pride or the sense of, whoa, look at me, everything is mine like a selfish child. But no, Jesus has redeemed all things, and I am a part of that. And I, in being united to Christ... can put my identity in Christ who has brought everything to himself. So let's look at who he talks about. He first of all talks about church leaders. Don't boast in these people because first of all, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, they're yours. In other words, just as he said, we are are working, we are laborers, and you are the field we're laboring in. God has given spiritual leaders not to be idolized, but to serve, to equip his people. Saying, you're you're trying to find your identity in them, and, and what we're doing is we're trying to point you to Jesus. Don't settle for idolizing us. How do we do that today? How many times do we run to books? Oh, I know that Christian author. He's really good. Oh, I know that Bible teacher. He's a really good Bible teacher. I'm just going to run and and skip the part where I study God's word to hear what they have to say about it so that then maybe I'll know God's word because of them. Now, Bible teachers and books have their rightful place. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but are we settling for second best 
when we ourselves are not in God's word, we're jumping to what other people say about God's word? You see, these individuals are meant to point us to Christ, to point us to the scriptures, not to themselves. He talks about church leaders, but then he gives a second category, the things of this life, the world or life or death. Now, if you're a first century Christian, you're thinking, okay, the world, life, and death, those are all negative things because the world is, a, is, is contrary to the, the one message of the gospel. In this life, we are currently facing tribulations and we are being in jeopardy at times of put it being put to death. But Paul is saying, no, when you realize that God is sovereign, that God's wisdom is what is being played out in this world as true wisdom that will not fade away, you realize that you are an inheritor of true life. That even in death, there is victory. That we do not live for this temporal world. Jesus is giving us an eternal world to come. There is victory there. Are you living for the world to come or are you living for this one? And then he talks about time. Man, it doesn't matter if things are present or things are future. All are yours. In the present, these believers were facing hardship. Just like we can face hardship. But it doesn't matter if we're in that hardship or in the world to come, in the future. We know where our ultimate hope is found. It is ours through Christ. Not to divide and conquer, but to persevere in knowing where hope is. So let me ask you, are you settling for second best? Are you settling for the my things that can be taken from us at any time? Or are you looking at the all things that have been made through Christ? One other category of settling for second best is in our relationships. While it can be true that in our dating relationships and in various relationships we can settle for second best, no, we're looking at a much greater relationship. In verse 23, he continues, he says, All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Look at these eternal relationships. In Christ, we have been made new. In Christ, we have been given an identity. In Christ, we have been given hope. In Christ, we are given life. Is that the relationship that defines you? And we see the relationship between Christ. It says, in Christ is God's. You may say, what does that mean? Later, Paul's going to describe in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, he says, When all things are subjected to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. You know what that says, Christ is God's? It's saying that Christ is not done yet. He is still going to complete his Father's plan. All things are going to be subdued under his feet. He's going to come again. 
He is going to come as not a lamb, but a lion and a ruler. And he is going to renew this world. And when that final plan is complete, he is going to look to his father and say, it is done. I've completed the redemptive plan that we have purposed. It is yours. And we will forever be with Christ. That's the end of the story. And the end of the story is only the beginning of the story. As I closed with some final thoughts last week that one individual had written, I want to close again with this quotation. It's on the screen. I want to read it to you. Here, Tom Schreiner says this, the Corinthians were inclined towards the world's wisdom because it gave them status and honor in Greco-Roman society. The Lord, however, will frustrate and bring to nothing what the world prizes. Ironically, the Corinthians failed to see all that God had for them in Christ. They were already reigning with Christ in the sense that everything in life was for their benefit. Can I ask you as we close, are you content to follow the same mistake that the Corinthians followed? To be finding your identity and your satisfaction in the things that this world offers you when because of Jesus, everything that God is accomplishing in his eternal plan of redemption is for our benefit. Whether things of this world, things of the next, things in the present, things of the future, the spiritual leaders that God gives us to remind us of the gospel, all are for the benefit of his church. What are you settling for? We must cling to what truly matters.